This is Heather Fleming, founder and director of InPurpose Educational Services. And this is Delaney Ray, the assistant director of InPurpose Educational Services. And welcome to the Listen, Learn, Love podcast, where comfortable friends engage in sometimes uncomfortable conversations. So put your shame on the shelf. There is no room for shame here. And let's get ready to listen, learn, and love. So, Heather. Hi, Delaney. Oh, Heather, I've missed you so much. You know, I've had a great time the last couple of weeks recording podcasts with guests, but it's it's truly not the same. I love you, and I missed you so much. I missed you, too, and I just really appreciate the fact that you gave me time for those that didn't know. Um, I was out on bereavement. I lost a, a member of my family that I'm very close to loved so much, even though we drove each other crazy. And so I thank you for that time to heal and to prepare. But that is also what is so cool about having a friend who is a deaf doula, because you always seem to know exactly what I need at the moment that I need it. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you giving me that time. Well, you're welcome. And, um, you know, I'm just... I'm always here for you because unfortunately there is no shortcut through grief. It's just, it's a long winding path and the only way out is through. Yeah, this has been terrible, but I'm glad for you. And I'm glad to be back on the podcast talking about very important things. Well, I'm glad to have you back because there's something I've been thinking about and I've been saving this conversation for you. Yes. As someone who is not Black and not a member of the Black community, I hear this one idea over and over. I have heard this my whole life in conversations. Usually, I will say these are conversations that happen about the Black community, but not with the members of the community, right? Right. And one of the things I've heard Mm -hmm. over and over is that one of the biggest problems when it comes to issues within the Black community is lack of participation by father figures. So lack of fathering within Black families. I hear this everywhere, Heather. Is there truth to this You know, idea? That, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is actually something that really bothers me. Um, a few weeks ago, I was involved in a um, debate, and it was a great debate, but one of the people that um, was on the opposing side, who who I will mention was a black man, um, kept propagating this particular myth, and I was just very upset by it because, yes, I know all of us can find anecdotal information that's like, oh, this child didn't have a black, you know, didn't have a father figure, or that child is being raised by a single mother. But I have several problems with this narrative. The first problem that I have is that research shows the opposite. Um, When the CDC, they did like a five-year study, they released the results in 2013, and they found that the group of fathers who are the most involved on a day-to-day basis, so the group of fathers that reads the most books to their children, that has the most meals with their children, et cetera, were black fathers. Mm. And, and it 
bothers me that we continue to say that that is the problem. And I'm going to be honest. One of the reasons why people outside of the black community list that so often is because it's easy. It's expedient. They don't have to do any work if they can find ways to blame the black condition on some failing of black people. And so that is what's called deficit-based thinking. It is where we blame the group for the issues created from systemic problems. And so when we look at why are there a lot of black households, there are black households that are missing parental figures in it, but it's because black men are incarcerated at a huge rate for stuff that other groups might receive probation for. Mm, okay. Um, or for things that, you know, when, for instance, when we looked at the drug issue they came through, the war on drugs ended up being a war on black men because of the fact that most of the people who were punished under this were black men who were caught with um, any type of, you know, marijuana, drugs, etc. And we did not treat this in the same way that we are currently trying to treat the methamphetamine, methamphetamine, um, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Delaney? Help me. (laughs) Well, they're calling it a pandemic almost. Okay, yeah, the epidemic, the the methamphetamine epidemic, the, um, you know, prescription pill epidemic, those are being treated as um, a health issue, a medical issue. But when it was drugs within the black community, it was treated as a criminal issue. And so we have a systemic problem that has now led to the fact that, yes, there are many black men who are incarcerated a lot of times for crimes, for victimless crimes, such as possession of marijuana. Which is now becoming more and more legal and more and more widespread usage is happening within white communities. Yes. yes. And so there are a lot, like right now, there are states where marijuana is legal, and yet black men are still sitting in jail for marijuana um, convictions. How, how can that happen? <laughs> Wouldn't that be the first thing that we would want to do is to say, okay, in California, Marijuana is legal. So maybe we should release all of those people that we convicted for smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that ends up being one of the reasons why it is easy to just say, you know what, we don't have to do anything because really the problem is the fact that black men have babies and don't support them. And that's just not. Um, true. Do you think that that just gives people an easy out then? If the problem is that black men are just bad fathers, yeah, then it 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 absolves the rest of us from having to make any changes or do any hard work or hard thinking on our parts to try to figure out what's what's going wrong. Absolutely. Okay, so if if black children are performing 
less in school, it's much easier to say, oh, well, there's nobody at home reading a book than to look at the school itself and the, and the institution of education to see if there's something systemic that's actually that, causing that, causing that problem. This is a really important point you're making, Heather. Uh, it it becomes, and that's one of the, the things, I have this book that I use um, that is a really good book, but it's about the, the need for culturally responsive teaching. And that ends up being part of what we need to deal with is that if you're, if you have students that are in classrooms where they don't see anything that represents them, that resembles them, that inspires them, then the issue is a systemic one with the curriculum, the way the curriculum is written, the way that teachers are trained, the way that, you know, all of these things. But the easy out is just to say, well, it's because um, black fathers aren't in the home. It's hmm. easier to do that than it is to fix those bigger issues that, that end up being systemic. The other problem I have with this narrative too is how based in misogynoir it is. Okay, um, can you walk me through that? We did a whole episode on misogynoir. So um, everybody should be very familiar with that term if you don't miss any of our episodes. Hint, hint, wink, wink. <laughs> Yes, uh, it 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 has these findings and you know these these this foundation in misogynoir because of the fact that it also implies that the problem is that black women don't have the ability to raise children to be productive members of society. Oh, okay, gotcha. And I don't like that narrative. Because one of the things that we find is that within the black community, the maternal figure is always such a positive influence for our children. So again, that, that gets back to this issue of finding some fault within the black community instead of finding fault within the systems. Yes, black women can do everything they can to raise their children right, but if black women have to consistently work two or three jobs because of the fact that and when we can get back into educational systems hasn't prepared them for higher education, um, circumstances of poverty, they're, you know, not being able to break certain um, cycles of poverty within the black community, cycles of poverty that were created because families were unable and when and kept for years for developing um, generational wealth. You know, we we can go into a lot of different reasons why when when there's not affordable housing so that, you know, some of these mothers have to raise their children in neighborhoods that they would prefer not to. Mm-hmm. Um, again, systemic issues that it's easier to dismiss when we can find blame within the black community. So I don't like it for that reason. But then the other thing that they really don't keep in mind is that a lot of times, even if the father does not live in a home, and sometimes that ends up being the way that they measure it and say, oh, this child is fatherless. No. The other thing that they find is that Black children are much more likely to have some type of father figure available to them. 
just because of the way that our society is set up. So for instance, in my family, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my uncle, when I was growing up, my uncle Big Ray was a huge influence. My dad was right there. Absolutely. You've talked about this. Yes. Yes. But my uncle Big Ray was the one that taught me to um, how to drive. He's the one that, you know, would sit and tell me stories. We traveled together. We did all kinds of stuff together. So I was never without some type of father figure. If my dad had to work, my uncle Big Ray was right there. And the same for my children. My, you know, my, my uncle Gregory, he now lives in um, Ohio, but when he lived here, he actually lived with me for a while to help me with my kids. Wonderful. So it's more like the, the village type community for raising kids that we're all told we should have, but that changed when families all ended up moving far away from each other, not, not living multi-generationally. Right. But there always is still somewhere there, someone there. Um, I can similarly look at the church. When I was growing up, a huge influence on me was my church. I always had male figures in the church to support me, to teach me, to, um, you know, be there for me, whatever it is. And so it just is a myth that that black children and all of the issues that are, are occurring with, you know, the statistics as far as the opportunity and academic gaps, et cetera, that all of that is the fault of not having black men step up into their roles as fathers. We not only have black men that step into their roles as fathers for their children, they step into it for all children. One of my favorite radio hosts is Ricky Smiley. Listen to him in the morning. He talks all the time about his sister's father, who he says never picked his sister up without picking him up too. Mm. Never. You know, so it just is one of those things where it's just, and I think that what has happened is that there are a lot of people that have started to, and we do this all the time, they started to take anecdotal information and apply it to everyone as if that's everyone's experience. Experience Maybe in your neighborhood or maybe in your family that happened. Mm-hmm. But that's just not the way it, it is in all families. And when we actually look, because that was something I ended up having to call out, um, you know, with this particular panelist, hey, the research doesn't back up what you're saying. Now, your experience might back up and might be confirmation bias for you, but what research says is totally different. And sometimes that's what we have to look at when we look at um, a lot of these stereotypes and not feeding into the stereotypes. Because again, there's a there's there are cultural gaps. There are um, you know, just a lot of different, you know, gender gaps. There's all kinds of gaps happening here. And those gaps are not just an opportunity, but it's also a knowledge and an understanding of mm-hmm. one another. And that's what when we are, are, you know, you know, because we've been working together for, you know, a year, year and a half now, you know, 
that that's what we really focus on when we are doing training is is looking at where are all the guests and how do we try to um, try to close them. So even this morning in our meeting, we talked about bringing back come to the table because it's so important to develop those relationships that show you there are different experiences out here. And we could tell you about those different experiences if given a chance and give you a different understanding. And so I I did not care for the fact when I was doing that debate that there were people who honestly were making, you know, decisions, um, making, stating opinions, et cetera, that were based in this totally false narrative that black men aren't present. And I think this also gives us back to another conversation we've had several times on here about why representation matters and why we, again, cannot ban books that are in voices that are different from our own or not even ban them, but we need to celebrate and push for books in schools and everywhere that, that celebrate different voices. Because if the only thing people have had experiences is stories of Black trauma, they're missing an entire huge narrative of the Black experience here, you know, in the United States, because we have just so overwhelmingly only seen one version portrayed in the news, in TV shows, in in the very few books and movies that were available that had, you know, main Black characters. Yeah, I've said before, you know this, that I have stopped watching movies that just focus on um, Black trauma. I I don't want to see another a movie about, you know, um, a Black person who's been enslaved, a Black person who survived racism, a Black person. I, we, you know, we live those stories. We um, have to examine them and understand them on a regular basis. So that's why, uh, and we talked about this in an episode, that's why um, Jingle Jangle was so important to me because here was this beautiful story that was rooted in blackness, but it wasn't rooted in black trauma. It was so fantastical. And that was so great to see a story that had whimsy and fantasy and just People don't understand. Like, happiness. I didn't have that. I didn't have that growing up. I didn't have stories like, you know, The Wizard of Oz and um, other stories that uh, The Never Ending Story, The Princess and the Bride, all of these wonderful stories that, you know, I love and I adore, but there was no one that looked like me in them, not as a prominent figure. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. Right. You know, there might have been some thrown in, but um, not as a prominent figure. So that's why all of this, this new um, genre of Afrofuturism, which was the episode we talked about it in versus Afro-pessimism, why that has been so important. And so even now, we that's what we need to see. We need to see those kids that are um, you know, are doing well, and then look at why. Why are they doing well? And I bet you that what we're going to end up finding is because of the fact that there was some systemic change that allowed them to perform well, as opposed to us just saying, you know, oh, well, they don't have a chance. And that's the why we're at it. Oh, just lay it all out there. I'm here. Yeah, I'm here for it, Heather. It. I'm that's here. Also, the problem that I have with this anti-CRT movement right now, because they say that we're teaching our kids to be victims. 
No, we're not teaching our kids to be victims. We are honestly trying to problem solve for what has happened and then fix it so they can meet with success. So to sit and just say, well, you're teaching us to be victims. No, what what you're actually asking us to do is to not look at um, what the problem is and allow them to remain victims, but allow them to remain quiet victims mm. of systemic horrors. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sorry. And I said this, someone um, was asking me, like, well, how do you explain some of this stuff? It, it's like this. Could we ever imagine that there was a prison and that prison was built to house white men and that around that prison developed a town filled with black people whose job it was to incarcerate those white men. We could never imagine that, could we? Not much. Yeah. No. Yeah. And yet, that is the reality of what happens all the time. We have a whole prison cottage in- industry where there are prisons filled with black men and towns develop around them that is all about service to that prison. And so that's where there's houses for the people who will guard the prison. There's houses for the people who will manage the prison. Houses for the people who will cook for the prison. Businesses that pop up, gas stations that pop up so that they can provide gas to the people who work at the prison. So if we couldn't imagine this for white people, why is it allowed to happen for black people? I was looking at, because I'm part of a a, a curriculum advisory committee, and I was looking at some of the test scores for the school district, right? Mm -hmm. And in every single school district, even the ones that performed well, there was this huge gap between the performance of all the students in the district versus the concentrated subgroups. So so who were the concentrated subgroups? Black children. So you, when could we imagine in a school district that was predominantly black, that was run by black people, that all of the staff and students were black, except the people who were the janitors, and you know the, the the school custodians, the school lunch workers, um, the school secretaries, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But everyone, you know, all of them were white. But everyone else that's like in control, decision making, superintendent, etc., that they are making these decisions. And yet, in that district, all of the white children perform less than the black children. Mm-hmm. If we can't imagine that, why is it okay that it's happening in reverse right now? So, no, we're not teaching children to be victims. We're actually trying to figure out what's going on 
that is causing all of these disparities and how do we problem solve for it? And in the in the midst of all of that, keeping all children at the center of whatever solutions we create. And not falling for these false narratives that that take us away from, from finding real solutions, like focusing on, well, it's just because of absent black fathers. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's, you know, the the nuts and bolts of it. I'm glad that you brought this subject up because, yeah, it's a problem. And we've got to stop that narrative. Because in the end, right now, we are in a time where um, we're in the midst of a racial reckoning. It's one that should have happened a long time ago. It It came to a head with the death of George Floyd because of the fact that that was so egregious, we couldn't look away. Mm-hmm. And that spirit has continued despite attempts to squelch it, despite attempts to stop it from happening. It is happening. It is very much needed. And in the end, we're going to have some rough roads ahead right now, but we're going to come out on the other side better for having confronted the fact we've got problems that we've got to problem solve for. And we don't start that problem solving process by being dishonest with ourselves. And to say every problem in the black community is is rooted in absent black fathers or poor parenting by present black mothers, that's not going to work anymore. It's just not, it's not. I, I'm going to be the first voice that says it's not because guess what? Um, yeah, I'm the product of excellent parenting. I am the product of um, present family members and that includes my mom and my dad but it also includes uncles and aunts and cousins and, and everything. I'm, the, I'm that product. I'm what comes from it. Some people may dislike <laughs> the product that I became, but, but then that's the reason why it's so important to have multiple examples because of the fact that, okay, here, here's some other people that also were the product of good parenting. You know, they may have different thoughts or different philosophies, me, but th- they still achieved excellence. But on the other hand, there's also one of the things that I know is that there are people right now who are much, might be much smarter than me that are working at McDonald's, that are working at these jobs that they so-called consider low, you know, low skill or low wage, which is another mythology we'll have to deal with. in a later mm. episode. Okay. <laughs> you know what I love is so many times we have an episode and then before it's over, we're like, okay, we need to do an episode on that. Okay. We need to do an episode on that. That's a whole nother class. I, I feel like thing. I need to sit here with a, with a pen and paper though. So I can like, you know, I'm in my closet. I don't really tend to have notepads in here. I only have, <laughs> I only have snacks in here, Heather. Um, but I do, I'm like, okay, note to self. Yeah. We, you know, but that, 
there are people that are, but they didn't have the same opportunity that I did. And the reason why they didn't have the same opportunity I did was not some failing of their parent. It was a failing of our system. It was a failing of their schools to properly educate them and provide them with avenues of opportunity where they could go to college like I did. They can go to graduate school like I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we could go through all kinds of stuff. You know, the, the kids that perhaps were started on that path, but then something tragic happened and they were not able to access adequate medical care or adequate mental health care. And so they ended up in a much different circumstance. Maybe they ended up in circumstance where they were self-medicating. And so now they're in jail for smoking a joint. Mm-hmm. Not because they weren't capable, but because they didn't have, they experienced a traumatic event. They didn't have the care that they needed in order to deal with it. And then after that, they didn't catch a break. They didn't catch the breaks that young white men leaving a party might catch. So we just have, there's just so much to think about. And that's the reason why that whenever anyone, and I've said this before and I will stress it again and then I will be quiet. But whenever whenever anyone offers you a simple solution, it's garbage. Because none of this is simple. And none of this will be solved in a one, two, three step program. It will require lots and lots of time lots and lots of learning, lots and lots of hours, lots and lots of, of, um, of effort, lots and lots of people in order to make this work because we have to disrupt at multiple levels. And that's the reason why it's so important for this conversation to be had at a national level because there is no one thing that is going to be the solution that we need. The solution is not all found in schools, but that is one area where it needs to be enacted. The next place it needs to be enacted is in our legislator, legislature. The next place is in our churches and places of worship. You know, it, 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 there's multiple places where we need to be working towards disrupting this if we're really going to get a good solution. And it will not be simple and it will not be easy and it will not be solved by saying the problem is the absent black father. Okay, I'm done. I suddenly was like speechless. I was listening and then you're like, okay, I'm done. And I, I, I wasn't I wasn't prepared to say anything <laughs> witty or intelligent or follow that up. Like I just was wholly unprepared except, you know, <laughs> clap of hands. Good job. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a big conversation to have and it's a lot to think about. And so, you know, the reality is, is that I hope that our audience knows that, you know, we, we try to do our um, podcast in a, a, you know, consumable chunk. So 30 minutes, hey, you can listen to it while you're on your way. But this type, these types of conversations are things that need to be continued. You need to continue thinking about it. You need to continue talking about it and learning. Um, and so I would say that if anyone has a te- takeaway from this, learn about deficit-based thinking and how it applies in equity situations. Because we often, um, when we get into these discussions, begin 
to find ways to absolve ourselves of any type of work or understanding but by blaming it on the group that is impacted. Our job as anti-racist is, again, and I say this to you a lot, not to change hearts and minds. Sometimes we'll have to in order to achieve our goal. But ultimately, our job as anti-racist is to change systems. And we can't do that if we don't acknowledge the ways that the system contributes to the problem. Absolutely. You know, it's much less dangerous to a person of color, to a a member of the LGBTQ community, to somebody who's disabled. It's much less dangerous to have that one guy in your neighborhood that you know doesn't like you and yells slurs every time he sees you. That That is uncomfortable. That's rude. That's horrible. That makes for really big social media posts that blow up, right? But that's actually much less dangerous than the polite gentleman who's sitting behind the desk who can who can make or break a family's ability to get a loan for a house or um, a system that can easily and without having to give any explanation put one person away in prison for twice the time of another when the only difference in the crimes committed happened to be the color of 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 the the person's perpetrator's skin yeah yeah those are those are more dangerous i'm not scared at all of the person that, you know, yells out the N-word at me as I'm driving past. I, I, I know who that person is. I can see it. I can prepare for that um, person's reaction to me, interactions with me, um, ability to have control over some aspect of my life. I can prepare for that person. The people I can't prepare for are the ones that smile at me and are like, oh my gosh, you're so wonderful. But then when given an opportunity, um, sabotages me. The person that is more dangerous to me is the individual that goes behind my back and somehow sabotages me, sabotages my ability to apply influence, to move into you know, positions of, of power, um, to use my voice in order to support others that look like me. Um, you know, there's there's so many ways that I can be sabotaged. That's what I'm more concerned about. I'm not concerned about the guy on the corner that, that you know, screams the N-word at me. I'm just not. Not everyone's going to like you. And sometimes when people Everyone's don't gonna like, like you, me, Heather. <laughs> no, sometimes when people don't like you, they don't need a good reason. Sometimes they just don't like you. Period. And so, and that's perfectly okay. But what we're trying to do and we're trying to work at as anti-racist is that they can't then take that dislike of you or people that look like you and use it to negatively influence other as every aspect of your life. Right. Or every aspect of public life for groups that look like you. So that gets back to what you were saying about the, the home loan, et cetera. Right. Man, I just thought of three more podcast topics, honestly. <laughs> so if you don't have anything else to do this afternoon, I say we just record for like six straight hours. Um, I'm a little busy this afternoon. I love you. Um, You know what? If we've exhausted this topic for now. For now. I want to tell you a really sad sad story that happened to me last night. 
Oh no, what happened, Delaney? Yeah, so I I live in a subdivision, and uh-huh. you know what? It's it as Heather's always said. You, you know, you need to charter a little flight to get out here. Yeah. It's, not, it's out, so but it is far. but it's a cute little subdivision, and we have this thing that we do where about once a month, some of the neighborhood committees hire food trucks to come once a month and it's just kind of a fun thing to go get food for dinner do you know what last night's food truck was what delaney it was a taco truck oh yay so do you know what delaney talked about and thought about all day long tacos right so the taco truck was going to be there at five o'clock what time do you think delaney showed up at the parking lot 455. Very close. Um, that was my intention. I, I'm one of those people who's like, oh my gosh, last minute, where's my keys? Right? So I got uh-huh. there at 503. 503. There was no taco truck. <gasps> what happened, Delaney? 506. Guess what? What? There was still no taco truck. What happened? The taco truck broke down. There was never, there was, a, I was like, do you remember the old episode? <laughs> Did you ever watch Married with Children? Yes. With Al Bundy. There was one episode where Peg told Al she ordered him a pizza and he spent like the whole episode waiting at the door for the pizza to come. <laughs> that was me with the taco truck. I was like, I'm, I'm Al Bundy waiting for my taco. Oh no, Delaney, that is so sad. It really was. It was, I was super sad. So I ended up actually doing what any normal sane person would do and driving 30 minutes, because you know I live in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. To go somewhere that I could buy tacos and then like had to wait there for another 30, 40 minutes for the tacos to be made and then drive the 20 it. minutes home. It was worth it. I know it was. I did get some tacos al pastor and 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 everything's fine now everything's fine but there were a few moments in there that it was touch and go emotionally if i was gonna make if well i wasn't worried for myself for a minute there i was worried about the other people who were standing around while i was hangry and waiting for my tacos (laughs) i'm sorry that made me that made me cough and laugh at the same time i killed heather listen that was like, remember when you um, discovered that app that let you make let you make your own Wordle? <laughs> I did. So Delaney discovered a map that let her make her own Wordle, mm-hmm. and I and then I posted it in the group for, yes, for our group our of friends, group friend group chat, and I guessed it in one. The very first try, the very, you very first it. time, I was like, "Yeah, it's tacos." It was and totally it tacos. Was tacos. <laughs> what five-letter word sums up what Delaney loves most in the world besides tacos. her friends and family? It's tacos. Yeah, and friends and, and so, family both have too many letters. So too many letters. So that is so funny. You there did. You were like, you were like, yeah, that was the world's easiest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, people. Other people were like, Delaney, I got it at three. Um, that was too, too many. For like Delaney, am- okay. Amateurs. Amateurs. <laughs> exactly. What's amateurs? <laughs> well, I knew if anybody would understand a taco emergency. Honey, that was tragic. I understand. I'm glad you're a grief, um, counselor. Because <laughs> you would have had to talk me off a ledge. <laughs>
What a grief Delaney is. <laughs> I specialize in helping people through death and tacos. And taco. Shortest I love you, Heather. I missed I you. I'm so you glad too. you're back. Okay, so we'll do this next week. Absolutely. Bye, Delaney. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can email us at listenlearnlove at inpurposeea.com. Find us on Facebook at Listen Learn Love Podcast. And please consider supporting us through our new membership program at inpurposeea.com backslash memberships. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at inpurposees or on Twitter at inpurposeea. Hey, we'll see you next week.